Okay, we are studying 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We are on verse 5. I need to do this again because it's been many months that we've been in 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is very much connected to Paul's own story, his relationship with the Corinthians. There's a lot of personal material here. There's, there's his historical background material that's interwoven into 2 Corinthians. And it's necessary to understand that because Paul keeps going back to personal narrative. And at the risk of being redundant, I'm going to again give us an overview of the historical situation because without it, the passage in front of us will be hard to interpret. Okay? And one of the things that lies in the background of the material in 2 Corinthians 7 is the severe letter. The severe letter is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians to correct them, and Paul was worried that it would alienate them because he strongly rebuked them in that letter. That severe letter is not extant. That means it's not part of our Bible, and we don't know what's in it. And part of the difficulty in interpreting First and Second Corinthians is that we have to read what is said to try to understand things that they knew and that Paul knew that we don't, that are assumed. Okay? Now... Let me give you here, I'm just going to read an overview of the situation that Paul's discussing concerning Titus's coming in 2 Corinthians 7. Titus, okay, I'm going to quote from a scholar by the name of Barnett. Titus's purpose in visiting Corinth had been to deliver the critical, severe letter, now lost to us. From the earlier and parallel passage, 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 11, it appears that Paul was not prepared to return to Corinth until the congregation had resolved their relationship with him. He would not make another painful visit to one. During that visit, the apostle had been wronged by an unnamed man, 7.12.2.5, those are passages in Second Corinthians, who apparently had the ongoing support of a minority of the Corinthians. We conclude that the majority, while not disagreeing with Paul, had not actively supported him by taking disciplinary action against the offender, which the severe letter called upon them to do, 2.9.7.12. At stake, therefore, was the future of his apostolic relationships with the church. From the earlier passage, we learn of their effective discipline of the man, to six. From the present passage, we discover the dramatic effects of the letter that led to their decisive action. That letter raised at least two problems for the Corinthians. The first that he had written rather than come in person according to his previous agreement with them. And remember in 1 Corinthians, we talked about that. He had changed his plans. And he said, but God doesn't. God's yes is yes and God's no is no. I had reason to change my plans, but you can trust that God doesn't change his. Okay? Because they want to know, why didn't you come? He said, you're going to come. He sent a letter instead. He wanted them to repent. And he was afraid that if he came before they repented, the sorrow and problems would be so severe that he would not be able to rescue his relationships with his church. 
That's what he had said in an earlier passage. Back to Barnett. Paul begins by telling them of the difficulties he encounters upon coming to Macedonia, in which, however, he was comforted by God at the arrival of Titus, verse 6. But more particularly with, by his announcement of their desire for restoration of relationships with Paul, verse 7. He diplomatically acknowledged the hurtful effect of the letter upon them, revealing that until now he had regrets about writing it. Now, however, he rejoices, not that they were grieved by the letter, but that arising from it, their godly grief issued into repentance. Verse 9, godly grief brings repentance unto salvation, whereas the worldly kind produces death. Verse 10, in that regard, he points to the dramatic outcome of the godly grief among them as expressed in their eagerness toward him. Indeed, his real purpose in writing that letter was not to reckon with the wrongdoer or the wrong man himself, but by it that the Corinthians might have revealed to them their true commitment to Paul. So besides his encouragement at the Corinthians' reassurance toward him, Paul rejoices still more at Titus's joy, such as was his relief at their response to him. Paul had expressed confidence to Titus about them beforehand, verse 14, and this had been vindicated by the positive response of the Corinthians to him, verse 15. Paul concludes by declaring his joyous confidence in them. So that's the background of this personal uh, note that we're going to study in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 5. Okay? It says here, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. It's interesting how Paul bears his soul to this church and reveals his own difficulties in a very personal way. Conflicts without, fears within. Now, this, by the way, is picking up a thread of thought that goes all the way back to 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13. It's, this is a difficult book to kind of tie together, okay? So let's go back to 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, and then see how Paul's picking up a thought that he left off clear back there. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord... I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went to Macedonia. So, so he went to Macedonia, and it doesn't say exactly where, but most likely place was Philippi, because he is, needs to hook up with Titus. Now, this was before cell phones. Yeah, really. Okay. So can you imagine traveling in the ancient world, and you're trying to hook up with somebody, and you don't know for sure where he is. So he has to go somewhere where Titus is likely to show up. And so most of the scholars think a likely place in Macedonia, which is part of what we call Greece now, would be Philippi, where there was a church that had a good relationship with Paul. From the book of Philippians, we realize that the Philippians loved Paul, they supported Paul, and they were solid in the gospel. So probably Paul went there hoping to meet Titus. So he left off. In 2.13, the thought, okay, what's going to happen with Titus? Now back in chapter 7, we're back to the fact that, oh, Titus shows up, and he meets him. And not only does Titus show up, he shows up with a report that Paul's severe letter had not alienated the Corinthians, as he was afraid that it would, but it actually resulted in their repentance. And now 
he is rejoicing because that had happened. So it says, even when we came into Macedonia, again, looking for Titus, our flesh had no rest. The, the tense here is a perfect tense, had, perfect tense. Flesh is literally sarks. Okay. By the way, that, that helps us understand it. There's a range of meaning in words in the Bible, and it's important to know that. You can't just look up a Greek word and say, okay, now we know exactly what it means in this context. Words in English, words in Hebrew, words in Greek, words in any language have ranges of meaning. Okay? Now, the word sarks is a very good example of that. Sometimes it means our, our, our flesh in the sense of being sinful and in rebellion against God or a tendency to walk away from God. The sinful nature is translated in an NIV. And some here, but here... Paul's not talking about his sinful nature having no rest, obviously, but just his body, his, himself and his body had no rest. Sarks. So our flesh had no rest. Uh, and literally, it says in the Greek, not even any rest, not even any rest. The perfect tense indicates that this was something that had started at a point in time and continued to be true. So he's continuing in a state of no rest, and as the opposite of rest, he's afflicted. Thalibo in the Greek, afflicted, afflicted, is a present passive participle, so it's best translated being afflicted, in a state of being afflicted. That's what a participle does. And, and it means to be pressed in. Okay, That same word can be used in, in other situations, to be in a crowd that's just pressing you in. But here it means that everything that's going on in Paul's life is pressing in on him. All right? Pressured, afflicted, pressed in. And that's a state that he's in. Passive indicates it's not something he was looking for. It's just what happened to him. You ever been pressed in? Where it seems like more things are going bad at one time than is reasonable for a person to try to figure out how to solve Okay, that's exactly what was Paul's condition. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without. So on the outside there were battles. Literally, that's what that word means, is battles. And fears within. So um, on the outside and on the inside, there are difficulties, there's battles, there's suffering, and there's, there's things that are pressuring Paul, not the least of what, which was his, well, the next verse he talks about being depressed, but not the least of which was his anxiety over the state of the Corinthian church and whether they were going to be possibly reconciled to Paul. It's interesting why he would be so concerned. And that's something I would like to discuss as we interpret this verse. Paul had been traveling throughout, as you read in Acts. He had his missionary journeys. And he had churches that he had founded that were favorably disposed toward him, not the least of which was the Philippians. Why was he so concerned with these Corinthians? Why, for example, didn't he just write them off? Okay, they, These people were just a lot of trouble. They, were, they had problems with immorality. They had problems with um, 
being involved with the temple cults. They had problems with church discipline. They had problems with super apostles that came by and, and, and told them that Paul was not spiritual. Can you imagine? Paul, the apostles, not spiritual enough. They wanted somebody better. Okay? I mean, the temptation would be, nuts to you. Nuts to you. Just go away. But Paul didn't do that because he believed that there were true Christians in that church and that they could be salvaged for the gospel. Okay, now let's go ahead and discuss the verse. Well, I was just thinking that in Corinth, he spent two years there, so he had a big investment of himself there as well. It wasn't just a transitory thing that he did. And Corinth was on the Corinthian Canal, the Peloponnesian Canal, so it was also a major crossroads of everything coming uh, east from Rome and west from the colonies went through Corinth, so it was very strategic in that yeah. In a sense as well, so it was an important city and some place that he'd already invested himself heavily. Absolutely. Very good answer, Keith. It was important that there be a, a Christian, not only that there's a Christian church, a Christian church is worthless unless it's faithful to the gospel. Okay? Well, how much do we know that? There's Christian churches all over America, but what good are they doing anybody if they're not preaching the gospel? So he had, he, he had invested there and he had suffered to be there. And he'd gone there in much fear and affliction, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. And he became, as he called himself, a father to them. And he cared about his spiritual children. Yes. He was also getting uh, somewhat positive reports from Titus. So. Well, that's what happens here. So what he's doing here is he's explaining what, he, what it was like waiting for Titus. Okay, His state of mind before Titus shows up was conflicts without... Fears within. Okay? And um, the, the, the not even any rest, not getting any rest because of his absolute sorrows and concerns of the well-being of this church that was, for whatever reason, it was for several good reasons, but very important to him, yes. Okay, like Paul was an apostle mm-hmm. appointed by Jesus. And like I'll contrast that with a human relationship where I've split up from a person and the relationship is dead and I feel sadness, but I realize I have to close the door on it. But Paul wasn't ready to close the door on that relationship. Yep, that's true. But he he was ready to do it to the Galatians. (laughs) He He says to the Galatians, who bewitched you? In fact, the Galatians, he, he didn't even thank God for them. Every other letter, he thanks God for them. He just starts out by rebuking them because they deserted the gospel. And he called them anathematized. Any of you listen to a different gospel? Anathema to you. Yes. Well, another element is that he doesn't run from conflict in any form. That's true. And the second thing about that, then, in a case like this where he could have easily given up, he gave us a pretty good example of don't give up on a church just because they're tough. Yeah. Okay. If there's hope for salvaging the gospel, the Bible is, would indicate to us that it's worth fighting the battle. If there's hope, that, if it's not a case of total apostasy and there is some flicker of light, it's worth fighting the battle for the gospel. And uh, as we look about our evangelical movement, I think let's just make an application, a general application. It's really bleak. We're not making this up, okay? The stuff we were talking about in the seminar yesterday, this is the way it is. It's a bleak situation. But 
the Lord has his remnant. And they're worth fighting for. Because God loves those people. And he wants them to have fellowship and have godly leadership. And he wants them to have comfort and encouragement. So it's, it's well worth the battle to fight for the integrity of the gospel. Yes. Well, maybe you can talk about Rick Warren, because in the Purpose Driven, this kind of has the same concept. If someone is going to open up the door for uh, a dialogue or to preach the gospel. Okay, then... yeah, I, I, I do have an announcement to make. I am flying to Lake Forest, California on Thursday for a personal meeting with Rick Warren. And he has... He asked a bunch of people to come out and listen to his conference and then said, well, if you, if you come to three days and listen to all these purpose-driven speakers, you'll get a chance to talk. Yeah, and yeah, and he's paying the expenses of it. And I said, no, I'm not going to come out to listen to speak, purpose-driven speakers for three days. I, if I had to do that, I wouldn't be worth talking to afterwards. <laughs> I would be too disgusted. I could not tolerate that. But then they lowered the, the requirement and said, all right, if you just come out, we want to have Pastor Warren talk to you personally because none of his critics have been willing to talk to him personally. And so I'm going to do it. I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, my intention... Thank you. <laughs> my intention is, is, by God's grace, pray for me, by the way, as we were considering, you know, we were talking, Dick and I were talking about, I talked to this over with the elders and, and with, with Keith and my, and my wife and people that I usually consult and decided that it would be wrong not to go because it would appear then that I'm ashamed of the gospel if I refuse to go. And I don't want to be accused of being ashamed of the gospel. Now, the passage that we're looking at concerning this is Matthew. Do you want me to share that? I was going to say, they put a challenge on you, actually. You should mention that, I think. Well, they, they challenged me. Yes, you wrote a book, and you said some things, and he wants to talk to you. You can't yeah. not come. Yeah, exactly. They, yeah. How, how, if, I, if I write a book and I won't even talk about defend my own book, then it looks like I'm a coward. Okay, and they could say, look, these guys are just cowards. They write a book, and then they run and hide. They won't even defend it. So I'm willing to defend my book. Now, the other point is this. Considering what to say, we, we considered this verse in Matthew. It says, when you get called before kings, now this man is no king, but he's friends of, with him. <laughs> Especially the Syrian one. <laughs> okay, remember that whole thing. Don't consider ahead of time what you'll say, but the Holy Spirit will give you the words. But notice in that passage, it says that the reason this is happening, Jesus said, is for, a, for my sake, for a testimony. So the only reason to go to any such meeting is to be a testimony for Jesus Christ. Not to talk about myself, not to talk about anything else. And so pray for me that, I know he wants to do that dialogical thing, and that's not my intent. I'm not going to dialogue to try to find common ground. It was good to have the seminar yesterday. <laughs> I mean... After that, man, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not interested in any dialogue. But pray for me. Because my intention is that there will be just two things that are non-negotiable. The rest of it is not even important. There's two things. The gospel, its integrity, and its proclamation, and sola scriptura. Scripture alone. 
Scripture alone. All right, and we're and and if he's willing to listen even for three minutes, I'm going to say you can't reform the church if you're not going to have Scripture alone. And so I'm standing up for that principle. And I don't see the peace plan, celebrate recovery, shape program, purpose driven, 40 days. None of those are based on Scripture alone. So that's why we can't agree. Yes. I have no idea. I'm, I, he, I'm hoping that it's as personal as possible. I mean, if I get out there and they stick me in front of 2,000 of his supporters, I'll still say Scripture alone. Yeah. Remember, uh, Dean uh, yesterday pointed out, Luther, they, were, they asked Luther, can you be right and all of Europe wrong? And he says, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yes, that's true. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like you said, you wrote a book, right? And others write books. Well, if you if they think about it, would that if you read that would that could be considered as scripture alone, or what you're trying to say is they must follow the scriptures? Well, my book would my book is my book contends that the entire I mean I just go through and kind of reverse engineer the whole purpose driven thing. The the issue was this: how can you take Christianity and make it so that everybody loves it? Okay, how is it that the UN loves your message? How is it that the Religious Writers Association loves your message? How is it that the whole world loves your message? And so then asking that question, say, if this is Christian and everybody loves it, there's a problem because Jesus said the world will hate you. All right, so then what I did was I just reverse engineered the whole thing. What that means is see how all the little gears turn and how the nuts and bolts work researched it, then in my book, I say, here's how this works, here's how this works, here's how this works, here's how this works. And then in the end, it's not biblical. It's not the gospel. That's, that's all I'm claiming. This is not the gospel. Yes, uh, who was next? Oh, Troy. I was going to say, I think we all need to make sure to be in prayer for Pastor Bob because I got a letter through uh, email from Ingrid Schluter, and she had, was invited there too, but it sounded like they were going to try to ambush her with, and try to make her attend the same thing, so that would be a concern. Yeah, Ingrid, can, Ingrid got the same email I did initially, as did James Sunquist, as did Ken Silva, as did, maybe that's it. I'm not sure whether anybody else did. And we all turned it down. We all said, no, we're not going to go listen to purpose-driven speakers for three days. But when they, when they only asked me to come to meet, I didn't feel like I could turn down that because it's a chance to stand up for the gospel. But really do pray for me. It's, you know, it's easy to get overawed by somebody's status. I don't think I have a tendency to do that, but we all need prayer. Rick Warren is, uh, is a CFR member, and that automatically means uh, he's, he's part of the military-industrial complex that's trying to create a change, and they wanna, that's why they want to uh, create the change in the church. Plus, he's uh, on the board of the John Templeton uh, Foundation, the same John Templeton that gave Chuck Colson a million dollars to try and uh, reconcile evangelicals and Catholics together. Yeah, So I he's know. a big player. Yeah, I know. Okay, so pray for me. I, I believe it's the right thing to do. Yes, uh, Dean, bring the mic over here to Dean. You know, you share inform. This is all about deforming the church. Yeah, so I know. That, that's why it's important you go to inform him in yeah. the gospel. Yeah. Yep. You know, the gospel, here's the go- let me tell you the gospel. That's what I want to share in uh, Lake Forest, the gospel. Here's the gospel, and you, you all here know about this because I preach it every Sunday.
But this is easy to remember, and it's way better than the four spiritual laws. Four points, and easy to remember. Four points. Number one, who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? See, people say, well, you need Jesus. Well, if you don't, they just think he's the founder of a world religion. If you, you know, the people don't come built in with the knowledge that Jesus actually preexisted with God, and he's, he's not just some guy who started religion. So you got to preach Christ. Who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? Number two, what did he do? And then you recount his life, his miracles, his sinlessness, his saving death on the cross, the substitutionary atonement, his resurrection, his prediction of his own resurrection from the dead, appearing before witnesses, bodily ascended into heaven. It's really the subject of a lot of the creeds, but it's better to be preached. That's point two. Point one, who is Jesus? Point two, what did he do? Point three, why do we need him? And that's when you bring in the law. The wrath of God is directed against our sin. We have broken the law. We've rebelled against God. We're going to suffer eternal punishment in hell. And Jesus shed his blood to avert God's wrath against our sin. So we desperately need him. Number four, what does he expect of us? And that is summed up in this phrase, repent and believe the gospel. What does it mean to repent? To repent is to turn. In fact, in in other passages, synonymously, it says, you've turned from idols to serve the living God. And so every human on the face of the earth is serving an idol. The idols of religion, the idols of self, the idols of pride, the idols of good works, the idols of uh, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Turn from those things and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. To believe is to put your trust totally in Jesus Christ. Believe who he is. Believe that he died for sins, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And totally trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And thou shalt be saved. That's the gospel. Now, can you remember those four points? Who is Jesus? What did he do? Why do we need him? What does he expect of us? There you go. None of that is through general revelation. No. Yeah, that's another point. As I was doing radio with Dick the other day, this just it's like a light went on. You can't, how can you study something for four years and all of a sudden you see it even better? Have you ever noticed that? We were doing radio talking about defending the concept of sola scriptura. And as I was doing that, all, I re- all of a sudden I realized in, more in depth what's wrong with the whole purpose-driven thing. Ninety percent of it is based on general revelation. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, special revelation is this, what God said. Special revelation. General revelation is what we learn with our five physical senses. You can learn that this kind of a mushroom will kill you, and this one makes you healthy. But we're not animals. We have to learn that. Okay? But what are the two things... I'm practicing, I guess. What are the two things... (laughs) Here's two things that people can find from a true Christian church or, or from Christianity that they cannot gain anywhere else. And I'll tell you what the two are. Salvation and sanctification. All right? You can be saved from God's wrath and conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Salvation, sanctification. Now, let's just look at the whole purpose-driven program. 
It's based on general revelation, not special revelation. Celebrate recovery. General revelation. We've studied people and we found out how to get the drunk sober. Okay, we can figure out how to do that. And they can do that, absolutely. I, I would affirm that a drunk can become sober through means other than the gospel. But you know what the drunk can't become? Saved or sanctified. <laughs> okay? It's one thing to be sober. It's another thing to be holy before a holy God. All right? So that's just general revelation. What about the SHAPE program? SHAPE program is a study of yourself. What's true about me, other than my spiritual condition, I can discover through general revelation. You know, your heart, you know, what makes you tick, what are your abilities, what's your experiences. I mean, what are they again? They're your personality profile. It's all general revelation. And so knowing about yourself in that general revelation way cannot save you, cannot sanctify you. All right? You can, now you take the purpose-driven life, and what you have is some special revelation, and even that, other than in a few instances, it's not even clearly taught. And it's, um, it's an amalgamation of special revelation and general revelation that the amalgamation is not what has God said, right? It's, it's something different. You can't find salvation and you can't find sanctification, so it's not what Jesus offered. So uh, with that in mind, I'm hoping to be able to say, this is why people are objecting to your program. It's... It's an amalgamation that can't save the soul and it can't sanctify anybody. It might make people live better. I grant that, but then so can, yeah, so, yes, people that are convinced, yeah, you could become a Mormon and live better, but it's not going to do you any good. Well, you're about half cranked up this morning. You want to go the rest of the way with the solas? All right. You, you did a thing. No? The solas, solas. <laughs> You, you did a thing when we okay. were doing the radio that was marvelous. You want to put it on? Yeah, Dick part? put a nickel in me the other day, and out came a whole radio show. <laughs> the whole we got going on the sola scripture, and I just went into the whole works of them. Let's do the solas, okay? I don't mind. This is important. When when we say that sola scriptura is the formal principle of the Reformation, what we mean by formal principle is it is the principle by which you establish the other things that you believe. Okay, how are you going to teach Christ alone? Well, you teach Christ alone because you started with Scripture alone, and Scripture points you to Christ. How are you going to teach faith alone? Well, you teach faith alone because you start with Scripture alone, and the Scriptures point us to faith as how we're saved, not faith plus works or faith plus sacraments or faith plus whatever the church may have offered. And, and so with the rest of them. So I wrote this article called Sola Scriptura, and why evangelicals are going back to Rome. And to my amazement, the feedback was negative in this sense. And this is why we did a radio show. I thought, if I prove, solo, if I prove that evangelicalism is abandoning sola scriptura, I'll win the argument. And so I prove it. And I didn't win the argument because they said, yeah, we have it. We don't care. Literally, we don't care. We don't believe in Sola Scripture. And I started getting emails from former evangelicals that became Catholic and said, we're happier now, and we don't believe Sola Scripture anyhow. And you Protestants don't even know what you're talking about. 
and I wrote the article for uh, Christian Worldview Network, in there the feedback's negative. No, we don't believe sola scriptura. No, we don't believe sola scriptura. So now I'm really f- fired up. Now we're going to have a battle. Right? <laughs> this, this is bad. And, and Dean, thank you for yesterday. It's all going back to, did God say? Okay? Did, did God say anything to us, and are we bound to it? Or are we going to have a discussion? Now, how do you establish sola scripture? Let's see if I can recreate what I did on the radio. All right? Where do you start? Let's start with Moses. Where do we get scripture? Here's where it starts. God speaks to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. Is that what it says? Okay. Moses gave us the first five books of the Bible. He got them directly. He got the revelation directly from God. God chose to meet Moses on Sinai in the tent of meeting and wherever and spoke to him and gave him direct revelation. So Moses becomes a mediator of the old covenant. All right? Moses told us about Adam and Eve and the garden and the creation, and Abraham, and all that. And that's who God chose to speak to. Now, when God spoke to Moses, by the way, he did more than just speak to Moses. He actually wrote on tablets of stone in Hebrew, in a human language, with a meaning that we can understand. People say, oh, no, you can't know, you can't know, we can't understand the Bible. Well, okay, you interpret this. God wrote this on a stone. Now, you tell me what it means. Thou shalt not steal. Oh, I don't know, what's that mean? It's so hard. We, we, we <laughs> no, it's not hard. All right? Now, Moses made provision for other people to speak for God and gave the terms whereby we could know if they really did. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that if a prophet arises and, does, and, and makes predictions, does signs and wonders... If they do not come true, I have not sent him, and do not fear him. Do not listen to him. And Moses said in Deuteronomy 13 that if a prophet arises and does signs and wonders, and it comes true, concerning which he says to follow after gods which you have not known, I'm testing you to see if you love God with all your heart. Don't listen to him. All right, so there's two tests. They have to be perfectly accurate, and they have to describe the God we've known, which is the God who revealed himself to Moses. That's the old covenant standard. Now, based on what God said face-to-face to to Moses, and applying those standards, we got the old covenant, right? That gives us Genesis through Malachi. That's how God spoke, through ordained mediators. Now, he also made a provision for another mediator. Because when God spoke face to face with Moses, he said this, I will bring forth, God said, another prophet like who? Moses. And when I raise him up, listen to him. Now, what that means is that within the Old Covenant was a prediction and a provision for yet another mediator. Because like Moses means that you're directly mediating from God law. All right? So who was that prophet that God raised up? 
You got the right answer. <laughs> Jesus Christ. God himself identified him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. From the cloud. The cloud reminds us of Moses and Sinai. So Jesus is the new Moses who speaks for God. Now, does God just leave it up to anybody to come along and say, well, gee, I speak, I think God, I had, I went to heaven and I'm going to tell you what God said or whatever. Maybe Rick Joyner or one of these guys like that. No. Jesus chose apostles. Jesus chose apostles. And he told them, he told the eleven, this, in John, somewhere between John 14 and 16. We never did find that verse yesterday. Somebody might want to find it. Where did, John, where did Jesus say this? The Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I told you. All right, that's a verse. And he only said that to the 11, because in, in John 13, Judas took off. Remember that? At the Last Supper, Judas went off to betray Jesus, and then he had a discourse with 11. <laughs> Not 12, 11. Those were apostles appointed by Jesus who were to be witnesses of the resurrection. And he said, the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind, remember, everything that I've told you. Therefore, the apostles were the appointed ones to give us the truth of the new covenant that they learned directly from Jesus. All right? He didn't just say, well, you know, just, just kind of survey the world religions and the people who claim to be Christian and see who has something good to say. That's not what he said. The teachings that we need to know were given through God's ordained mediator, Moses in the Old, Jesus in the New, and through the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles and prophets of the New. Now it says in... Found it, okay. Uh, oh, go. sorry. <laughs> You're being patient, thank you. We're looking for this one verse. It's actually, John 14, 25. 14, 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Okay. So there, now remember how God does this? He spoke to Moses face to face. Moses didn't go into a trance. God spoke to him tangibly. All right? How did God speak to the apostles? In the flesh, in Jesus, tangibly. I spoke these things to you. The Holy Spirit reminds you. All right. Now, the New Testament was given to us by apostles and prophets, according to Ephesians 2 and verse 20. Right? Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The people that weren't apostles who wrote New Testament books claimed that they got their material from eyewitnesses who were. The early church tells us that Mark got his material from Peter. All right? Luke himself says that he surveyed eyewitnesses and he got his material from them. And Luke was an eyewitness in the sense that the we passages in Acts, he was actually with Paul when these things happened. All right? So the New Testament canon was determined not because the church came and said, we speak for God and we're telling you this is the Bible, therefore it is, because we said so. 
That is not true. And, and as Catholics would try to tell me that, I put it back in their face and said, are you saying that the church has the right to declare anything scripture at any time, no matter what, and that's how they did it? And he said, no, I'm not saying that's how it happened. Well, right. They did not declare these books to be scripture because they were the church. They, found, they looked for evidence that these books were written by apostles. That was the number one criteria. And that's why Hebrews almost did not make it into the canon. They could not affirm who was the author of Hebrews. And it almost didn't make it. And I told this one Catholic who was debating me, I said, well, see how dumb your own church is? They, they, uh, they put Hebrews in the canon, and Hebrews rebukes the Catholic church more than any other book in the New Testament. Uh, he decided he didn't want to email anymore. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you wouldn't have Hebrews, you wouldn't know that Jesus is the only high priest and the blood was shed once for all, all these things. And uh, So there you go. Now, there's no evidence. That, did the Bible just show up in three something, 300-something A.D. because some council, oh, we got a Bible now. No. The apostles were quoted as authoritative. They were quoted starting in 97 A.D. by Clement of Rome, who the Pope says is an, a, 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 I mean, who the... Catholics say is a pope, and he didn't even know he was a pope. And Clement of Rome didn't acknowledge any apostles other than the actual apostles. And he told the Corinthians they should listen to the elders that had been appointed by the apostles and follow the prescription of Paul, who told them how they should appoint new elders. So they already knew that they had in place in the church in 97 AD a means for appointing, not apostles, elders. There's no, there's no uh, criteria given in the New Testament for a succession of apostles. But there is criteria for the appointment of elders. Because you have to see the resurrected Christ. You have to have seen the resurrected Christ to be an apostle. You see that in Acts 1 when they were considering Matthias. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 9, when it talks about Paul, who claimed to see the resurrected Christ. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul claims that he was one born out of time, but that he had, as one born out of time, seen the resurrected Christ, and he is the last. Therefore, nobody else meets the criteria. He's been so patient here, I've been... Yeah, I, I just loved a purpose-driven church a few months ago, and um, I thought it was wonderful at first. I thought it was great. I was really getting into it. And uh, a friend from work gave me your book by Bob DeWay, Pastor Bob DeWay, and I was on the purpose-driven, and anyhow, that's why I'm here. But um, <laughs> what I was getting at is that I began connecting dots after I read your book. I, they brought in a guy named Bono as a rock and roll star. I really enjoyed him back in the 80s when I was an idiot. But... Um, <laughs> He, he, was, he was linked up with a woman named Oprah Winfrey, and I began connecting all these dots and seeing where all this was going. And I, my question is, is this the apostate church that the end times is going to be built around? Is this whole purpose-driven movement as the underlying apostate church? Apostate church. I think it's bigger than it, but I think it's part of it. I think, in my opinion, the ultimate road is back to Rome. Okay. And that because of this dialogue and cooperation, and can't we all get along, and let's just imagine what we could do to change the world if we all got on the same plane. Rick Warren says his peace plan is going to mobilize 
2 billion Christians. Well, how do you count that many? Rome. Rome. It's going back to Rome. And it is apostate. It'll just all subsume ultimately into Rome. That's my opinion, and, but my opinion is based on the book of Revelation, where you see Rome is the headquarters. Yes. I was just going to say the other, the other uh, proof or support for Paul being apostle is that Peter himself and the other apostles acknowledged that Paul was an apostle. So it wasn't just Paul claiming yeah. some yeah. revelation on his own, but Peter in yeah. Second Peter claims that what Paul wrote was scripture yep. and had yep. the yep. authority of God okay. at the time of the other apostles living, and Paul met those and they endorsed his ministry. Okay, so Peter said Paul wrote scripture. Now, in the intervening period, this, we talked about this on the radio, there were in early church history from 100 to 150 when there were disputes about what was true and what was from Jesus Christ that had to be believed, they would like to consult living persons who knew apostles. Okay, because there's, there's these epistles, but they weren't universally available. Okay? Because you have the whole Mediterranean basin, and then you got Alexandria, and you got Jerusalem, and you got Antioch, and you got what's now Constantinople, and you have Rome. And so, in all the little churches in between, Asia Minor and Greece, not everybody had all these documents because they had to be slowly handwritten and copied and what have you. Okay, so there's a dispute about doctrine, and somebody, what, what's true? It's 135 AD. What's true? Well, Polycarp lives over here in Ephesus or wherever he was. My, my church is, this is all coming from 15 years ago. So anybody know, finds me wrong, that's okay. You can correct me. But wherever Polycarp was, he knew the Apostle John. He'd been a friend of John. And they'd say, Polycarp, you knew John. What did he say about this? Okay? And when you read Polycarp's writings, he's quoting Paul's, like, Ephesians and stuff, the Scripture. And they didn't know how long history was going to go on, right? So they, they, there were people who knew the apostles, and they knew what the apostles taught. But it was always recognized that what the apostles taught is what is inerrant and authoritative, is what was from God. That they knew. If we could find out what the apostles taught, that's what's true. That principle never didn't develop later. It was always there. Okay, so now we get to 155 A.D., the time of Justin Martyr, and then this Marcion shows up. Marcion's a heretic who's starting to deny that big sections of the Bible were from God. He's going to create his own canon, Marcion. All right? And he said, well, this is from God, and he's denying certain things about the nature of God, and he got rid of whatever books uh, in the Old Testament or wherever that he didn't like. And so they have to fight Marcion. So what happens in 155 on is a need to start identifying a New Testament canon. They accepted, the old one was always just accepted by the church. Okay? Genesis through Malachi, God gave it to the Jews, God gave it to us. And you can see a dispute about that with uh, Justin and Trifo, the Jew, in that document. I love that. That's my favorite church history document, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifold Jew. And it was a debate where he stood up for Christianity. Now, okay, Marcion's saying this isn't Scripture, this isn't Scripture. So now you start debating what is. Because by 155 A.D., 
nobody was still alive who knew an apostle. And for a while you could say, well, this guy knew this guy who knew the apostle. But it's getting kind of tenuous to try to talk to anybody who was actually an eyewitness, a senator, an apostle. So now you have to have documents. It's the only way you're going to know what the apostle said. You need documents. So therefore, the church began to identify documents as being from apostles. And there were, there were shorter lists. There was this Muratorian canon that was an early list. Okay? And this process went on until finally in the 4th century it was settled. Here's the 27 books of the New Testament. But the basis of settling it was that did this come from apostles? And the church did not claim that we are apostles, we speak for God, and we can say anything we want, and whatever we say, it's from God. That's not what was claimed. The Roman Catholic Church is built on lies and false claims. There's no succession. Peter doesn't have a chair that still exists. Nobody sits in Peter's chair, and nobody on earth speaks for God beyond Scripture. Nobody. Sola. Sola. <laughs> All right. And therefore, we take our stand. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone, because we learned those things from Scripture alone. That's what it means to have a formal principle of your theology. And Luther was dead right to stand up against the entire church on that basis. And unfortunately, what I just said to you is now I'm going to have to say and publish and write over and over because no longer can you go to a Protestant and quote-unquote, no, they're not protesting anymore, they're just trying to see how we can agree with Rome, you go to a Protestant and say, that doesn't fit with Scripture alone, and their eyes glaze over. We don't care. That doesn't mean anything to us. So now I've got to go back and give this whole big thing that I just did in order to even start the discussion. You have to debate, debate it all over. Yes. I just wanted to say that, um, or wanted to hear your response, because we've sat in churches where they claim that Jesus is walking through the door right now. In this subjective relativism that we're in, how do you respond when, okay. you know? So, okay, the question is, what, they say, well, Jesus just came. Or somebody else say, I talked to Jesus last night. Now they got a new revelation. Jesus is telling me this, and Jesus is telling me that. Here's how you respond. 1 John 4 and verse 1. Any spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ come in the flesh is not from God. The Jesus Christ that somebody saw in their dream, the Jesus Christ that somebody saw when they went to heaven, the Jesus Christ that was mystical Jesus who just walked through the door is not Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Why was it important for John to say Jesus Christ came in the flesh? Why does he start for John by saying, well, we've touched, what we've handled, what we've seen, the word of life that we declare unto you, who we have fellowship with? Why did he say that? Because God spoke tangibly to the apostles, and he wanted to show there wasn't a mystical Jesus, it wasn't a spiritual Jesus, it was a Jesus Christ with a real body who talked to real men in real history and said real words, and they knew what they were. Just like God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so God doesn't leave the transmission of uh, binding authoritative words to some ethereal 
process, some mystical process. So I would say that that's not Jesus Christ coming to flesh. Now, why does John say after that that the ones who come are antichrists? Antichristos it means either against Christ or substitute Christ. And I believe the context shows it's both. They become against Christ by being substitute ones. Yeah, you get, yeah, yeah, they're both. Now, the, how, how does Jesus Christ come in a flesh guard against the Antichrist? Well, because if Jesus is just a spirit that can be, show up in anybody, you can have the avatars, Christ, Buddhas, so you just have a spirit Jesus, can be identified. But the Jesus, who's the real one, still has the marks of Calvary, and he sits bodily at the right hand of God, and he's going to bodily return. That's how we know. Okay. The question that I have is, okay, uh, what about the evidence of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Don't they point toward scriptural also? The Dead Sea okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls, I don't need this. <laughs> I got my own. <laughs> the, Dead, the Dead Sea Scrolls are evidence that we had it right to start with. Okay? And if you want to go on the Internet, they don't no longer allow these to actually be seen. In 83, I saw the Dead Sea Scrolls, including the Isaiah Scroll. But they found out that even light, any kind of light might destroy them. So now they've, they've been photographed and put away. But you can go on the Internet and you can find a photograph of a Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah 53 that is older than the time of Christ. All right? So here's a, it's fabulous. So here's Dead Sea Scroll older than the time of Christ, and scholars have translated it, and you can see it on the Internet. I, I, I found it there years ago. And said here, they, they made a kind of interlinear. And, the, and though there are actually differences between the Dead Sea Scroll Isaiah and the Masoretic text Isaiah, there's no difference in concept. Okay? And so there you have Jesus Christ preached... <laughs> in Isaiah 53, on a scroll before Jesus Christ was alive. It's older than the time of Jesus Christ. And the scholars agree, even the liberal ones agree, it's older than the time of Jesus Christ. How, you know, it takes a lot of faith to be an unbeliever. <laughs> okay, <laughs> go ahead. I was just saying that the, the battle that we're fighting now in Sola Scriptura is the same one that Luther fought because the mysticism was the basis for the yeah. popes to begin with because the pope claimed that he has mystical revelations from the Holy Spirit. And Luther's whole claim in Sola Scriptura is that the Holy Spirit only comes to you through the external word of preaching and reading of a tangible word and that internal revelations and internal spirits are not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes through the word and the word alone. Yeah. yeah. And you just published an article on that, right? If you go to Christian Worldview Network, Keith publishes articles there under K. Gentoff, and he has one on Sola Scriptura, you know, on Luther's fight. Yeah, Sola Scriptura for Charismatics, it's called. <laughs> okay, the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. Now, I was going to quote something back to Second Corinthians. I got two minutes from that. No. What about Paul's anxiety? Conflicts without fears within. His anxiety was over the well-being of a church. 
And I'm going to quote Barnett on that. More probably, however, they point to his yet unresolved anxiety. In other words, where did these come from? Um, His unresolved anxiety about the Corinthian reaction to the severe letter. Paul's fears within in Macedonia appears to correspond to no peace of mind in Troas and the non-return of Titus reassuring him of the Corinthians' response. Titus' delay surely suggested a further deterioration in Corinth. In other words, he's thinking, this is going to be bad news. It's always an anxious thing to be waiting for news and you don't know if it's going to be good or bad. Is that true? It's very hard not to be a little bit anxious. To which place in Macedonia did Paul now come? The strongest possibility is Philippi, just a few miles along the Aegean Ignatian Way from Neapolis, the most probable port for arrival from northern Asia. Three reasons make Philippi Paul's likely place of sojourn. One, the most possible rendezvous point with Titus, once time to come to Troas had passed, was Philippi, Neapolis. Two, the church which he established. Imagine, that would cause anxiety. He's supposed to come to Troas. He doesn't get there. Traveling is a dicey thing in the ancient world. There's no communications other than by hand. And so he's taking a chance by going to Philippi. He's never going to see Titus. But he probably believes if Titus does try to get here yet, he'll go to Philippi because there's a church there. Okay. Uh, Two, the church which he established about six years earlier had been especially caring toward him. Philippians 4, 16 to 14 to 16. And three, given the problems of his initial visit, it probably would have been more difficult for Paul at Thessalonica, the other strategic possibility, if, if yeah, because there was so much persecution in Thessalonica. It was a horrible place, uh, if you read in Acts, what, how they hated Christianity in Thessalonica. If Philippi was the city of Macedonia to which Paul came, it is likely that he wrote this letter from that place. Nonetheless, it is evident that Paul had extensive contact with the Macedonian church during the period. So that is 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 5. This morning we're going to be in Luke during church, and so we have a half-hour fellowship time. I'll see you upstairs. God bless you.